Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to us now so that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path so that we live according to your ways. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we continue looking at the book of 2 Samuel and looking at the life of David and his interactions with uh, particularly commanders of different armies here. And uh, this, of course, falls at a particular point in history where there's this transition that's taking place between the first king of Israel's house, Saul, Saul's house, which has been taken over by Ishbosheth with the death of Saul, and David now rising to the throne over all of Israel. Uh, this, is, of course, falls in a period of history where uh, you've had the, previously the judges uh, new, used by God to look after the land of Israel. Uh, those judges originally uh, happened from the period where Joshua had come into the land. If you go back before Joshua, of course, you've got the Israelites in Egypt. They came out under Moses. And if you go back from there, you get back to Abraham and then back to Adam and Eve in Genesis. So this is where this is falling in history of the Israelites. The Israelites have been gradually growing from Abraham onwards. And, uh, and now there's this period of transition where you've got a different throne uh, ascending, and that's the throne of David. And this is, of course, important for us as Christians, because eventually David's throne will be sat on by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So the fact that Christ's throne is legitimate is partly rooted back here in the book of 2 Samuel and chapter 3 in what we're looking at today. And what we saw last time is the ending of this civil war that's been happening between the house of David and the house of Saul. And the way that the end of the civil war is coming about is by Abner, who is the commander of the, the army of the, the rival kingdom of Ishbosheth. He repented of his ways of going against David and came and met with David last week and had a feast with David and they reconciled and he agreed, Abner agreed, that he would go away and gather the people of Israel so that David could be their king. And so Abner had been sent away in peace. Now while David and Abner were meeting, David's commander Joab, the commander of his army, was not present. And that's what we just read about, that Joab comes back, he finds out that his enemy, the commander of the rival kingdom, has been, David has eaten with him, made a contract with him, and sent him away in peace. Joab is outraged, and so what does Joab do in his rage and in his anger? He murders Abner. And that's what we read in verse 27. Now, when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway as though to speak with him privately, and there to avenge the blood of his brother Azahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach, and he died. Abner is killed by Joab, and it's because of the death of Azahel, Joab's brother, which we saw a few pages earlier, in battle. Joab had a brother called Azahel. Azahel was chasing Abner in battle, and Abner tried to deter Abner, uh, uh, Azahel from chasing him, and in the end, he stabbed Azahel in the stomach, and he died in battle. And because of that, Joab is wanting vengeance on Abner. He is wanting vengeance, and he is angry. And so as a result, he murders Abner. Now, is it murder? Well, it clearly is murder, because Abner is meant to be at peace with the kingdom of David. And that includes Joab. Three times it's emphasised in 2 Samuel chapter 3 that David sent Abner away in peace. You're not meant to attack people that you're at peace with. If it's in battle, that's another thing. But Abner is no longer an enemy of David's kingdom, which means he's no longer an enemy of Joab. And, of course, we see the way that 
Joab kills Abner, it's very sly and premeditated. He gives Abner this sense of peace with him, calls him over, and then has to speak with him privately, and then kills him. He doesn't die in a fair fight. He dies in premeditated murder. And all the worse, because it's committed, this, this treacherous murder is committed in the town of Hebron. Why is Hebron such a terrible place for this to happen? Well, Hebron was actually designated by God as one of the cities of refuge. What is a city of refuge? Well, in the law, God said you're going to have these different cities scattered throughout Israel, and if you accidentally kill someone, you can flee to that city and stand trial there, and the avenger of blood, the family member that, of, of the person that you've killed, can't attack you within that city that you can go there and get a fair trial and make sure that justice is administered. Hebron was one of those cities. Of all the cities in Israel, Hebron was one of those cities where Abner should feel that he would be safe. And we know he's clearly in Hebron because of what it says in verse 27. It says, now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway. They're there in the gateway of that city, which means he is protected. Even if he has committed some sort of death against someone, he has the right to a fair trial in that city according to the law. But what does Joab do? He murders him in the city of Hebron. And so this is a terrible act by Joab against Abner. And what is David's response then? How does David respond to this murder of Abner? Well, David mourns. We see David mourning. How does he mourn? Well, we see him tearing his clothes and weeping. In verse 31, it says, Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind the bier. They buried Abner in Hebron and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. David mourns the death of Abner. He puts on sackcloth and he mourns by weeping and he sings a lament, which we are given in verses 33 and 34. And he also fasts. In verse 35, it says, And they all came and urged David to eat something while it was still day. But David took an oath, saying, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun sets. We understand that David, in his response, is not one of glee and happiness, that the commander of his rival, of the rival kingdom is dead. No, instead, he's mourning. And what else does David do? He calls for God's vengeance, for God to curse the murderer, and his family. We see in verse 39, and today, this is David speaking, and today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zariah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. What does David do? He calls down vengeance upon the murderer. And what in particular? Well, we can see it in verse 29. May his blood, that's the blood of of Abner, fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. May Joab's house never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. He calls for God to curse Joab and his household. And what sort of curse is it? It's one where the household of Joab would be weakened. These kinds of things that are described there, that he wants to come upon the house of Job, would mean that these people cannot go into battle. 
If you've, if you've got a running sore or leprosy or you're leaning on a crutch, or another way of translating that phrase in uh, Hebrew is that they're doing housework, leaning on a spindle, or leprosy, or, uh, sorry, or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. If you're hungry, you're not going into battle. What he wants is Joab's house to be completely weak and so that they cannot do the kinds of things that they've been doing previously. They cannot murder whoever they like. And so this is what David does. He mourns and he calls for God's vengeance to be poured out upon the house of Joab. But what else did David do? What did he do to Joab himself? Well, firstly, he makes Joab mourn over the results of his sin too. And we see that in verse 31. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. He makes Joab mourn the consequences of his sin, which is the death of Abner. He forces Joab to mourn. But what else does David do? He actually calls for Joab's execution. 30 years later, mind you. 30 years later, we read that he calls his son Solomon to execute Joab for this crime 30 years earlier. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5, when David is telling his son Solomon how to rule and what he needs to do, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5, he says to Solomon, David says to Solomon, Now you yourself know what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to the grave in peace. What does David do as a response to what's happened with, between Joab and Abner? He calls for Joab's execution 30 years later. Now, how is this helpful for us to look at this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 3? Why is it helpful for us? Well, there's many lessons that we could draw out of this passage. But one is that we can remember that we have a king over us who behaves in the same way to situations like this. Who is the king over us? Well, it's Jesus Christ. Now, how does Jesus feel about murder? How does he feel about murder? Well, we understand that Jesus mourns over the sin of murder, that he is grieved by it. And he calls for vengeance upon those who murder others, who take the lives of others. If we can see an example of that in Matthew chapter 23. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, page 981, if you have a church Bible. Matthew chapter 23, and we'll read from verse 29. Matthew chapter 23 is a passage where he's, Jesus is speaking to the crowds and to his disciples, and he's teaching them about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he has some very stern words to say about the teachers of the law. And we'll pick it up at verse 29. You may like to read the rest of the passage this afternoon. But we'll pick it up at verse 29. Verse 29, the Lord Jesus is speaking and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I'm sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. 
Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zachariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you read the rest of the passage, you see him pronouncing woe, 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 woe to people who resist the Lord's ways and who put to death the Lord's people, his prophets that come to him. And we see, of course, this is fulfilled in the book of Acts. The, the Jews are not afraid to put to death God's apostles as they are sent to them. And Jesus is grieved. You see that in verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's grieving like David did so many years before. Jesus is grieved by the actions of of the Jews towards his, and towards his people and particularly to his prophets. And he pronounces woe upon them. He calls for vengeance. And this is Jesus' response today still to those who sin against him, to those who are murderers. But who does Jesus count as murderers? Who does he consider to be murderers? Well, we read before in Matthew Chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, who Jesus considers to be murderers. What did we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21? Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Who does Jesus call for vengeance against? All those who get angry with their brother sinfully. All those who call their brother Raka, you fool. Jesus says we'll be subject to the fires of hell. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying all mankind he counts as murderers. Why would I say that? Why would I say that? Well, from infancy we're murderers. You just look at children and they've all given the evil eye to their parents, to their brother or sister. Jill's grandfather used to call it thunder face. That you're showing a thunder face. And you've seen it on children's faces. And the sad thing, it, does, it doesn't just stop with children. It continues through the teenage years. The thunder faces continue. And into adulthood, we're all born little murderers. And we continue to murder with our anger. We may not actually take up a sword against someone, but in our hearts we do. And Jesus counts it as murder. And how does Jesus feel about it? He's grieved over it. And he calls for vengeance. And what does Jesus eventually do? Well, like David, he calls for the execution of murderers. For David, it was 30 years later. And for, and for Job, it was 30 years after the fact. And sometimes with Jesus, it can be a whole lifespan. More than 30 years, but eventually the execution does come. Those who are murderers, Jesus puts to death eventually. And then what does God do? He does what Jesus wants, which is curse them. Pour out his vengeance upon murderers. And when does God do that? Well, ultimately he does it on judgment day, when he places murderers in hell. 
What's the purpose of hell? Well, there's many purposes of hell, but one of the purposes is a weakening of that person. By imprisoning them in hell, in eternal dungeons, what can that person never do again? They can never hurt another person. That's what David was calling for for the house of Job, that they would be so weakened that they cannot hurt anyone else. And what does God do? He puts murderers in hell so they can no longer cause sin against others. So what hope is there for us? If we've all been murderers since our infancy and continue on into adulthood, what hope is there for us? Well, our only hope is Christ the King. He's our only hope. Now, why would he be our hope when he was the one that curses us for our sin? Well, unlike David, Jesus laid down his life in his mercy for the sin of those who trust in him despite their murderous actions over the years. Now, why couldn't David lay down his life for Job? Why couldn't he set Job free? Why did he call for his execution at his end of his life? Well, there's many reasons, but one reason is that David has his own sin to deal with. He's got his own anger problem. He's got his own murders that he's committed. David was clearly clear of the blood of Abner. We saw that emphasised there in 2 Samuel chapter 3, that he emphasises in, in verse 28 that he is clear of the blood of Abner, that God could not hold him for account for it because he did not order it. He's very clear on that. Verse 28 uh, we read, uh, later when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. But David was a man of blood himself. He was clear of Abner's death, yes, but he was a man of blood. We read in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 7, when he's speaking to Solomon, his son, David says, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. He wanted to build the temple. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. David was not permitted to build the temple of the Lord because he had shed much blood. But unlike David, Jesus never sinned. Jesus never sinned. And so he could lay down his life for angry people. Jesus never murdered an Abner, even in his mind. But did Jesus lay down his life for, for murderers? Yes, Jesus died on the cross as a substitute so that murderers could go free. Jesus at the cross was doing what? He was receiving God's vengeance for murderers. He was receiving the curse of God that should be poured out upon murderers, upon angry people. It's a wonderful news of Christianity. The good news of Christianity is that the king himself, who calls for vengeance, actually put himself under that vengeance for those who will come and trust in him. So have you seen your anger? Have you seen that you're an angry person and even mourned over your anger? Well, that's good. That's good. I mean, Joab mourned over the death of Abner. He was forced to by the king. Have you mourned over your anger? It's good, but it won't save you. What will save you from God's curse for your anger? It's only trusting in Christ's sufferings. And if you've never done it, do it now. If you've never trusted in Christ 
to solve your anger problem, to solve the curse that you deserve for your anger. Do it now. But you may say you're here this morning and you've been convicted of your anger in the past. You've mourned over it. You've been grieved at the consequences of it. And you've trusted in Christ Jesus, but you want to know, have I really escaped the vengeance of God that I deserve for my anger? Have I really escaped hell? Well, the question then is, have you changed your wicked ways or are you still an angry, sinful person? Like Joab was. Because when we look at Joab, yes, he mourned. He was compelled by the king to mourn over his sin. Just like God can compel us to mourn over our sin, there's many people who are grieved by their sin, grieved by the actions of their anger, but they don't change their wicked ways. And we see Joab didn't change his wicked ways. How do we know? Well, he murdered another army commander during peacetime as well. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 20. You've got to turn a few pages over from 2 Samuel chapter 3. Page 317. Page 317. And we'll read from verse 1. There's a rebellion that takes place in the land of Israel. So David is on his throne. And we read in verse 1, page 317 of 2 Samuel chapter 20. Now a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son, every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. When David returned to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to take care of the palace and put them in a house under guard. He provided for them but did not lie with them. They were kept in confinement till the day of their death, living as widows. Uh, this is referring to an instant, and David has actually been out of Jerusalem uh, because of his son Absalom trying to take over the throne. And then we read in verse 4. Then the king said to Amasa, summon the men of Judah to come to me within three days and be here yourself. But when Amasa went to summon Judah, he took longer than the time the king had set for him. David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom did. Take your master's men and pursue them, or he will find fortified cities and escape from us. So Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty warriors went out under the command of Abishai. They marched out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. So David's got this situation where he's got a civil war beginning. He sent to this man Amasa, the commander of his army, to basically assemble an army and and deal with this problem. He takes too long, so he sends somebody else and Joab goes with him. And what do we read in verse 8? While they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it at his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's hand and Joab plunged it into his belly and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. Joab mourned over the death of Abner. He was compelled to do so by David. But he didn't change. This almost reads exactly the same as we read back in 2 Samuel chapter 3. His treatment here is just the same as the way that he treated Abner. Joab mourned but didn't repent. And so do we want assurance of freedom from sin and its curse? Freedom from anger and the curse that we deserve for anger? Well, we must see if we have changed. 
We must see if our anger has been replaced with what? With love. Love for who? Love for God and love for others. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For whoever, anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you say, I love you, Jesus, and I, I trust in you, Jesus, to take away my sins and to deal with the curse that I deserve, but then hate your brother, what does the Bible tell us? You are a liar. You can't claim to, lie, to love someone who you cannot see and all the same time hate people you can see. You're a liar and the truth is not in you. Love is key for understanding whether we are really saved. Why? Because if we truly know God's forgiveness for our anger, if we know that he has forgiven us, then the Spirit's love flows from our hearts. We know how many times we've been angry and he has forgiven us and therefore we are grieved at the thought of being angry again. That love for him flows and a love for others who struggle in this world flows to them as well. It's hard to be angry if you have the love of God flowing in your heart from the forgiveness that he has shown you, from the love that he has shown you. So if you've been convicted of your sin, your anger in your life, and you've mourned over it and you claim to trust in Jesus, but you continue to get angry with others and don't try to change. See, that's the problem. Of course, as Christians, we still get angry. But are we content in that anger or are we grieved about it and working against it always? Joab clearly was not someone who was grieved about it ultimately. He did not try to change. But if you are someone who is like him, who is mourning for your sin and the consequences, you're grieved about it and you claim to trust in Jesus but... You do not see a change and you do not see a struggle against anger. What's that mean? You are still a Joab. You are still a Joab. And what does that mean? You still grieve Jesus because of your sin. And Jesus curses you and he'll one day execute you and God will curse you in hell for all of eternity. It's a plain teaching of scripture. You may get another 30 years, but one day he will execute you if you continue in your wicked ways. I encourage you, if that is you, if you feel in any way that you could be a Joab, turn now, trust in Jesus Christ, and know the forgiveness that comes through him. But if you have seen a change in your life, what should you do? What should we do who have mourned over our anger, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, and have seen a change, and a wrestling with the anger that's within a wrestling against the thunder face, that we don't want to give that face to people and we don't want to stamp our foot because of what other people have done. We want to be peaceful and loving to those around us. If we see such a change, what should we do? Well, we should rejoice. We should rejoice. Why? We have evidence that the king loves us and has saved us from the judgment that we deserve for our sin. For all the times we've gotten angry, all those times that we don't even remember when we were an infant, and we gave dirty looks to our mum because she wasn't feeding us as fast as she possibly could. All those times we wrestled with our brother or sister in anger, right on in through adulthood. 
we should rejoice that he has saved us from the consequences of all those times of anger. And we should thank Jesus. We should rejoice. We should thank him as well for giving his life for murderers like us. He didn't need to, but he did. He laid down his life, took the penalty that we deserve. And so we should be thanking him every day for his kindness to us in saving murderers like us. This is the wonderful picture that we see at, the, at um, Jesus' trial where Barabbas, a murderer, is released and an innocent man is put there in his place instead. And that is a wonderful illustration of what has happened for all us who trust in Jesus. We are the murderer who is released. And Jesus, in his kindness, as an innocent man, experienced the wrath that we deserve. And so we should thank him each day. And what else should we do? We should rejoice. We should thank him. We should also, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begging God for his power each day, struggle against our angry flesh. As I said before, we as Christians will still get angry because the flesh is still there. The sinful nature is still there. And it is an angry sinful nature. But we need to wrestle against it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And how do we do that? Keep on looking to Jesus and his love. Keep on looking to Jesus at the cross. See the results of your anger. That's what David did with Job. He made him walk past the buyer and see the results of his anger. We need to do that as well. We need to walk past the cross and see the results of our anger and be humbled each day by the justice of God, but also the love of God in taking the penalty that we deserve for our anger. If we do that each day, it's harder to be angry with those around us. Let's come to Christ Jesus in prayer. Let's speak to him now. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the king, the king who has all justice. We recognise that you are grieved at sinful anger and you call for vengeance against murderers. But Lord, as we come before you, we must confess that we too have grieved you by our sinful anger and we have deserved God's vengeance. But we thank you that in your mercy you gave your life and were cursed so that we who trust in you now are forgiven and are actually changed. We've been transformed by the power of your spirit so that we do not get as angry as we used to. So Lord, we come and we rejoice in you and we ask for your help, that you would help us in our struggle against our angry flesh. Give us an abundance of your Holy Spirit. May he anoint us each day so that we love you and love our neighbour, the ones that we can see. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would have an overwhelming love in our hearts for them instead of a murderous anger. And, Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is still under your wrath, who is still going to face the curse of hell, oh, Lord, we pray that they would be convicted of their anger now, that they would mourn over it, and that they would come and trust in you and turn from their, their sinful ways and trust in you and your kindness to them. And we pray this in your name. Amen.